Francisco. <laughs> we got a lot to cover today because I packed a lot in this one. Um, this is going to be session three. Uh, I will raise. Jesus brought honor to the Father in word and deed will be in John chapter two. It's supposed to be 11 through 23. Um, the authors of our curriculum uh, did not want to deal with the wedding at Cana um, because the whole wine issue, I, I am bold enough, I will tackle that. So we will start there. So we'll actually start in, in verse 1. Um, I don't find it to be a, an issue. As we read it, I will uh, make several uh, points in this. But one of the things as we come into this, um, we live in a world where we have clean water. Um, we can buy bottled water, you can turn your tap on, you can drink it. When we lived in Korea, um, it wasn't that the water at the sink wasn't uh, drinkable, it just wasn't desirably drinkable. The, the water was... Right. Well, it was uh, the, the, a lot of buildings. The pipes were old, rusty, so it would come out brown and whatnot. We boiled it. It, it always got boiled if we were using that water. Um, it's not like you would. It's not like Mexico where you would end up with something. But in the ancient world, they drank because the water wasn't safe. Um, now I don't know whether the wine was like the wine we have today. Whatever. But in the Hebrew, there are two distinct <laughs> words. One for the juice that's squished from fresh grapes, what we would call grape juice. And there's one that's fermented. It's wine. And the words used here are is the words for wine. Jesus made wine. He didn't make grape juice. I know that that's a thing that some teach. He made wine. And it was good wine. Now, I don't know what the ancient world thought of as good wine. But if it's anything like the world today, um, you know, it would be tasty, it would be nice on the palate, and it would be have an alcohol content. How much? I have no idea. I don't know what the ancient world's alcohol content was. They had no way to control it. They knew nothing of microbiology, how it worked, and all that. All that to say, it was alcoholic, but at what level and all that, it's irrelevant. Jesus made wine for a feast, and we're going to talk about that as we get into this. So let's uh, let's move forward. We'll start with uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If somebody will read those nice and loud for us. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, 
although the servants who had drawn, drawn the water knew. Then he called to the bridegroom, he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. <laughs> but you have saved the best till now. All right. This is a miracle. Um, when we, not only is this the miracle of changing water to wine, this is the first recorded miracle that Jesus does, which I think is significant. And I want to look at the significance of it. It has nothing to do whether whether you should drink, not drink, and all that. That's that's a modern issue. And that's what we got to remember. The whole idea of prohibition and all that is a modern issue, and only because we've figured out how to clean water. No one, no other point in time in history did, did anybody care or look at it that way. What the issue was back then was being drunk or not drunk, not whether you did drink. That was assumed. The, the quantity was what mattered. So putting those issues aside that are modern-day issues, as we look at this, we have to understand, Jesus says, it's not my time. What does he mean, it's not my time? I always took it that he didn't want to reveal who he really was yet. Yeah, okay. He wasn't ready to start his ministry. This is going to be important to understand as we go into the sections the next section that's, that is today's lesson. This wedding, he has disciples that are following him. How many? At this time? Yeah, at this time. How many, how many, guys, how many people are following him? Four. Four. As far as we can tell, Jesus had four disciples. Now remember, when we left him, he had called Peter, Andrew, John, we don't know about John's brother James. He's not mentioned anywhere. Philip and Nathaniel. So it's actually five. I forgot Philip. Um, Nathaniel is from Canaan. And remember, it said that Jesus went to Galilee. He had been down by Jericho. He travels up to, to Galilee, probably for this wedding. This is probably why he was going back home. Now, his mother holds a position of something to do with the festival. Likely she was the aunt or somebody and she's running like the kitchens. Weddings for wealthy people uh, would last a week and you're required to feed and entertain your guests for a week. Now, the, the blue collar workers, we'll just call them blue collar workers, the guys who, who were farmers and whatnot, they still gotta work. I mean, you gotta feed the cows, you got to feed the sheep. You know, you, you got to do that sort of thing. So they would leave and then come back in the evening. So they, and then they would party all night. And then they'd get up and, you know, because it was a, it was a party festival. They would provide wine and meat and drink all day and night for the guests. And up, like I said, up to a week. So Mary is probably one of the women. She's probably related to either the bride or the groom um, and is there helping. And for a wealthy person to run out of food during a feast like this 
is it, it's serious embarrassment because the whole town is there. Um, this this is not yeah, it's not acceptable. Uh, this would be he would lose great status and all that because he didn't he didn't get enough. So she, Mary's like, okay, I'm going to talk to Jesus. Now this tells us one thing about her view of Jesus, doesn't it? Yeah. What? I love the way Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? And all my time, she goes, just do what he tells you. She knows. <laughs> right, she does. She's got some. Now, mind you, this is the first miracle. He's not done anything. So is she expecting a miracle? <laughs> probably not. She's probably expecting him to go down and buy wine. Right, she's the, he's the oldest son. Um, so she's, you know, just, just, just do something. Well, he does. Now, I want you to understand what a miracle is. We call a lot of things miracles today. For a miracle to be a miracle, it must only point to Jesus. So if it's a miracle, it points to Jesus. It must be in his character. So that tells us something uh, about this miracle. It was in his character to produce wine. And not just any wine, a high quality wine. It must portray the glory of God. And last, it must lead to people believing in the Jews. Now we'll see that later on when we get to the next passage. Those are the requirements for a miracle to be a miracle. It's not about helping us or doing something for us. It is to glorify God and point people to Jesus. That's why miracles happen. So that being the case, I want to look at, there we go, uh, a doctrinal statement. If you have one of those doctrinal books that I've given out, um, this is statement number 30 about miracles. A miracle is an event in which God makes an exception to the natural order of things or supersedes natural laws for the purpose of demonstrating his glory and or validating his message. Miracles are recorded throughout scripture. Miraculous signs and wonders were oftentimes evident when a prophet or apostle was speaking God's message to the people. Because we believe God to be all-powerful and personally involved in this world, we believe he can and does perform miracles. So the whole idea is that a miracle is something that happens that is not natural. And it's for the purpose of his glory and making his message clear. That's what a miracle is. Alright? This is the first one Jesus does. And it is going to have an impact. We're going to see in a minute as we do this. All right, so here we are. This is the presentation um, of Christ as the Son of God. So we're in uh, our outline of John. This is part two. He's being presented. This is the first presentation of Jesus as himself. Remember, John baptized him, and there was a presentation of God announcing him. That was miraculous. Uh, but that was God doing it. Now Jesus is doing it. And the whole point is to prove I am the Son of God. I'm claiming it, and I'm going to do it. So, as we're looking at this passage, good becomes best. That's the whole idea here. This water, 
in these stone jars, about 120, 130 gallons. That's a lot of water. <laughs> um, what kind of water was this? Probably well water. Okay. Dirty. Mm, yeah, likely. Yeah, this was special water. I mean, it's drawn from the well, just like drinking water. But they put it in these stone vessels. This is purification water. Okay. In the Jewish system, one had to wash all the time, regularly. You couldn't touch food without purifying your hands. They didn't actually scrub, no soap, no water. But it was a ritual bathing. And that's what this water was for. So this was special, sacred. This is like holy water. If those of you who grew up with a uh, Orthodox, um, you know, Catholic, Greek, whatever, there's holy water and you would bless yourself when you come in. That's this kind of water. Once it entered those jars, it was sacred. It was, it was for ritual purification. Nobody would use it for something else. I'm not sure that they would use it to put out a fire. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's purifying, it's purity, purifying water. And Jesus says, I'm going to use these. Um, I'm sure, I mean, that sends a message to those who are there. We don't get it because we're not Jews. We didn't have all that ritual purification. But he's making an issue at it. Um, secondly, we see that he starts his ministry with a wedding. Um, that's significant. Um, Jesus is present. And he performs his first miracle. I think he re-sanctifies marriage. He is there at this. Weddings by this point in time were business contracts. It wasn't about the wedding itself. Um, and Jesus makes his first public appearance in the company of his apostles, which means he's proclaiming that I'm a rabbi. I have disciples. I have followers. <laughs> at a wedding. Um, and then he does the first miracle, um, making this, and, and, he, and he takes blessed water, this purified water for, for purification, and he offers it to us to drink. And it's not, like I said, the wine, it's not just any wine. He makes the best wine out of this water. The miracle did not make something bad good. It made something that was good better. And I think that's what he's doing. He's, as we see, he is going to sanctify marriage because it's going to become the illustration for the church. So here's the beginning of his ministry. And Jesus is at this wedding. And we're going to get to the end of his ministry, and he's going to tell us that the church is what? Bride. The bride of Christ. And he's going to use an entire marriage concept of explaining how we fit with him. He's the bridegroom. We're the bride. He's chosen us and all of that. I find that very interesting. Um, as we look forward from this point, um, marriage in the Christian church becomes very sacred. It wasn't. At the time of Christ, it really wasn't. It was a contract. Husbands and wives kind of lived together and, and, and all that. 
It wasn't the relationship that we have today. And we're seeing that being broke down in our own time period. Um, Christianity redeems, sanctifies, and ennobles um, the benefit of marriage, which at that point was an abused institution. Um, Christ's whole work turns water of the earth into the wine of heaven. This is the beginning of his miracles, and it's to manifest his glory, just as he re-sanctifies marriage to make it a symbol of his relationship with his saved people. Um, th there's a lot going on, imagery going on here that John understands, being a Jew and having sat there and all that, that we've lost. I mean, we talk about, you know, we want to marry for love and all that, which is, you know, even a hundred years ago, marriages were often arranged. And as marriage is um, the joining of two people, we joined with God. And that whole picture is something I think the church has forgotten as we look at it. That, that, that's what marriage is about. It's the joining of us to God, and the, the picture is the marriage here on earth as we look at this. Um, also, one other thing as we look at this. Um, the wedding is a joyful, happy occasion. It's a festival that lasts a week, usually, for rich people. Jesus sanctions this. He doesn't start his ministry with a discord on the frivolities of festival, enjoyment, uh, you know, parties, and all that. Um, Christ's countenance uh, or, uh, contended that our seasons of festivity... Um, fulfill a need that we have. He encourages them. Somehow the early church and even our late forefathers uh, had this ascetic view that we as Christians should be miserable, unhappy, that, that being smiling and enjoying something is somehow sinful. This whole ascetic <laughs> mentality is contrary to Christ himself. He's at a wedding. He is enjoying the festivities to the point that they run out of wine and he doesn't go, see, this is the way it's supposed to be. No spending money on this. It's a waste of time and research, right? That's not what Jesus does. He's like, okay. And he makes the best wine anybody's ever had. Nice face, by the way. You're, you're welcome. But that's how so many Christians are. We can't have fun and enjoy things. There's work to be done. There are sinners dying out there. There are mission fields that need more money. Waste money on having cake and ice cream. How dare you? You should eat the crust of the bread and, and lukewarm water. And call it soup and that should be enough. The whole monastic movement. You know, you take vows of poverty and chastity. Where do you get that? Christ is at a wedding. He blesses a wedding and the party itself with his presence and by performing a miracle. We're supposed to enjoy life. You look at, we look at scripture, this whole ascetic idea that we just have to just subsist as Christians and, and just accept our lot in life. Scripture is full of festivals, parties. They're even commanded by God that we're supposed to celebrate these things. And that's all good. So good becomes best because when we celebrate them and they're the things of God, 
It brings honor, glory, like the party we had Friday night for Cindy. Mm -hmm. We celebrated her, but this is a triumph, not just to her, but it's a glory to God that she's managed to finish all these years of work and retire, that she's made it to this age. There's all her family, kids, grandkids, great-grandkids. Wow, what a statement. And all these people there to celebrate. God's happy about this. There are those in Christian circles who'd be like, that's a waste of time, a waste of money, a waste of... No, it isn't. Christ himself goes to parties. He's going to go to a lot of parties as we go through the book of John. He's going to show up and enjoy himself. And his disciples are going to enjoy it. And it's going to be fun. And it's not just about ministry. Cindy, there were a whole bunch of unsafe friends of yours there, weren't there? They got witnessed to, didn't they? Between statements that Steve made, the prayer, the fellowship that was going on. What a testimony. That's what people need to see. Not how sour a face we can have and how serious we are as we carry around our 95-pound Schofield reference Bible and, and all that. See how godly I am? Well, I... Yeah. That isn't godliness. At least not what Christ is showing us. Be joyful, be happy, enjoy life. All right, comment or question? See, I told you I didn't. I wasn't going to skip this section. <laughs> Go ahead, Carl. I think, I think there's a there is a scripture. I don't even know where it's found. That says, "Like the Lord has given us all things freely to enjoy." Yeah. I don't know where that's found. Well, and I, I mean, if you look at Solomon, he tells us in Ecclesiastes that there's a time for everything. There is a time for mourning, but there's also a time for enjoying life. So when it's that time, enjoy life. All right, let's keep on going. I did think of uh, when I was ordering different things, and, and my dad always told my mom, make sure we have enough yep. you know, food and everything. <laughs> well, I really wanted to have enough wine, so I didn't have to ask Jesus to turn water into wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the wine came from. <laughs> All right, let's get into where we're supposed to be now. John chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Yeah, but that was like background. We needed to know that for this. Go ahead, somebody. <coughs> this is the this the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana and Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. All right, this is important, I think. We, we're... There's a lot going on here that I think that the early church would have known because it's it's not written here, but it would have been common knowledge and we, we've kind of lost it. So let's start with a map and so we can see where we're at. Okay, so here's a map. We had this one last week. This isn't one that you have, um, but there's uh, here's Canaan. Here's Sephora's. Remember we talked about that city? What's its significance? It's, uh, it's Greek. Greek. It's Greek? But what's its significance? It had rocks. It had rocks. <laughs> it's probably Joseph worked. Yes. This was a city that was destroyed and that um, one of the Herods was having rebuilt during the time Jesus would have been growing up. It is likely where his father worked as a mason. It's probably where Jesus learned to be. Uh, a mason or carpenter as we call him. Um, it's not far from Nazareth. It's halfway to Canaan. These dots are the road system. 
which is funny, those are still the roads today. As we drove through Israel when I was there, we came um, down this highway because we were staying in Tiberias um, with it. And so we drove right through here. We came into Nazareth and then came up and all that. We drove through Canaan uh, and saw all that, but we were on that. That's the highway system of today. Likely, this is the path that they took. As you can see my little red line here. They had the wedding at Canaan. When the wedding was over, they said they went to Capernaum. So that probably means they traveled down to the road here, through the mountains. I mean, you can see how mountainous this is. Um, and let me tell you, a map doesn't do it good, even if I showed you <laughs> photographs. Uh, it, it is crazy how mountainous that is. And then up there, this is probably a two-day trip. Um, that probably took them two days, maybe two and a half uh, to get there. You can see the scale up here. That's uh, 10 miles, so it's like half a day from there, another day and a half, you know. So it's, it's about two and a half days to get to Capernaum um, as they're going. Which is interesting, they didn't return to Nazareth. Why would they not have returned to Nazareth? Well, the disciples were from the Sea of Galilee. Yes, but Mary and her sons, Jesus' brothers, also went with them. The only thing that comes to my mind is what one of the disciples said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay, that's a good point. That's a, that's a good point. Maybe Jesus is start planning to start his actual ministry Okay, that's a possibility because he does base himself in Capernaum when he's in Galilee. Um, I do remember when he did go to Nazareth, they, they didn't believe him because they, they thought they knew him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm going to suggest something even more basic. Where is Joseph? Good don't question. Know. <laughs> we don't know. The fact that he's not mentioned in the family going there, at least in Jewish terms, because let's face it, it's a, it's a, a patriarchal system, male-dominated. They don't talk about him, they talk about Mary. They don't talk about the husband. He's likely dead. She's a widower. Huh? A widow. Oh, a widow, yeah. yeah. She's a, likely a widow. Remember, when Jesus is hanging on the cross... His responsibility for his mother is passed to John. Oh, wait, now wait. Why would you do that? Because he's his cousin or something. They're cousins. Where was John from? Capernaum. John's mother is Mary's sister. If Mary is a widow, her living with her sister would not be unusual, would it? Thus, the family going back to Capernaum would make sense, right? Now, there's a business that Joseph had in Nazareth still, probably being run by older children. There, there are several sons. We don't know of all the family. We don't know how many there were with him and all that. But going to Capernaum makes perfect sense. Now, this we need to hold this in our minds because as this story progresses, some of this is going to make more sense because there's a lot of theological argument over some of the stuff we're going to talk about this morning 
that is easily solved if we remember these things, all right? So just to hold on, there's a lot of things to hold on to until I can pull them all together. So just grow some more arms and hang on to them. All right, any comments on this before I move on? It's interesting that the Bible doesn't really talk much about Joseph. No, he don't, it doesn't. It we don't know where he... seems odd. He had to. Yeah, just seems odd. Yeah, he's not the important... I, I, I get that, but it's still odd. Right. <laughs> well, I think he died. I, I really yeah. do. Yeah. All right, so we're going to be here. The glory is shown as the reference here to the story, which is why I had to go back. And, and look at that. Um, it says that this was the first sign Jesus did. Um, and it manifests his glory. This is interesting. Nobody knew what he did, did they? Except the people of the way. Well, just the, the jug holders. The, the servants and the <laughs> disciples, right? They're the only ones who knew what Jesus did. That's interesting, but they glorified Jesus for this miracle. They glorified God. So it's going to manifest glory to God, which then in turn manifests belief. It says that they believed. What did they believe? That Jesus was God. Yeah. Remember, that's what John's purpose is. John is trying to convince us Jesus is the Son of God. And he starts off with this miracle of changing water to wine. Let me tell you, people would love to be able to do that today. We can do that with our science. We can turn a lot of things into a lot of stuff. Um, but we cannot turn water into wine. We can turn grapes into wine. Apples, peaches, pumpkin. I mean, they, they make wine out of anything. But they can't just get a bucket of water and make it wine. With all our science and chemistry microbiology and all that, we, we can't do that. Jesus does. And it points to Jesus' superiority over Jewish law. I think there's more purpose here than we get. Remember, we talked about it. There are purification jugs. The law says you have to purify yourself. Jesus says it's what's inside. Here, drink it. You can drink this. It doesn't make any difference. We're going to see Jesus is overturning a lot of the Jewish ritual system and replacing it with himself. I am in charge of the water. The water answers to me. I made it wine. Drink it. To give that out as a festival beverage, you know, it's a, oh, it's purity water. It's a purity. This is not. This is just wine, man. Take this and, and offer it around. Drink it. Who is he to do that? I mean, that's that. That's if the people at the at the uh, tables would have known that they were drinking, that the, they would have been appalled. Hmm. And Jesus makes it common. We made it uncommon. We sanctified it. We said this is special. But that's not what was special, was it? The purification ritual was following Christ. The water had nothing. There's no special properties in that, is there? It's just common water. Jesus restores it to where it belongs. This is just common water. He's the one that is important. 
the ritual was to be cleansed before God so that we would be presentable to him. That's what the rituals were for, so that we could come into the presence of God. So that when you bless the food and you ask God for the blessing, you had some sense of that. There's whole layers of stuff here. And Jesus is declaring his superiority over the Jewish ritual system that was imposed by the Pharisees and Sadducees. It is interesting. There's nothing like this miracle anywhere else. I mean, this the claims... Um, would be considered blasphemous if an apostle or uh, a prophet would have done this. Only Jesus could take the sacred water and say it's not. I mean, if you showed up and said it, I don't care how authority you were, yeah. you couldn't do it. Th this, is, this is what Christ is bringing to the world. This is the beginning of his ministry. He is saying, I, it's me, I'm the son of God. Nobody else could take and lower the status of these things um, and it would be acceptable. Also, as we look at the miracle itself, we as evangelicals are not familiar with the apocalyptic literature that's in the Apocrypha and, and books like that because we don't, we don't read them usually. But according to Jewish apocalyptic literature at that time, which most of these guys would have been aware of, um, taught that when the Messiah comes, wine would be blessed and the fruit of the vine would give 10,000 fold when it is pressed. I mean, that, that was the sign that the Messiah was there. Uh, so the apocalyptic literature predicted this. Therefore, Jesus shows up and his first announcement is to fulfill the ridiculousness of this thing. 10,000 fold. So, you know, you, normally you squeeze a grape, you get what? A teaspoon of juice? <laughs> so, the, according to them, when the Messiah comes, you squeeze that grape, you're going to get 10,000 teaspoons. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Out of one grape. How ridiculous is that? I mean, talk about hyperbole. Jesus says, okay, I'll take it a step further. There are no grapes. It's just water. Here's wine. 130 gallons of it. Yeah. And you can find those um, in uh, Barak, uh, 2nd Barak, chapter 29, verse 5, or 1st Enoch, chapter 10, verse 19. Those are references to this whole idea. They're there. They would have been aware of this. So Jesus is making wine. See, there's so much going on, and we just miss it. Because we just don't study. I mean, these books are out there. We have them. We know. Comment or question? I have one question. Um, you kind of said that they, it was the ritual water, but he said for them to fill it up. Mm -hmm. I guess that means he emptied it so that it wasn't the ritual I don't water. know. They probably weren't full. I mean, they, they, they wouldn't have been... They probably weren't filled all the way. He said fill them all the way. Because, I mean, they were for, for you know, bathing. You know, not whole body, but, you know, you would splash it up on yourself. So they, they probably weren't full. And he's like, fill them all the way up so that we can get the most wine. Yeah. All right, let's move on because we're going to run out of time. All right, chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, 
and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Okay, here's where we run into our theological problems. Um, scholars have been debating and arguing over whether or not this event is in the right place. The argument goes that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, all record this event. But they record it during the week of Passion. So when, when Jesus is going to die, this happened. John puts it here, and he makes it clear that after the miracle at Canaan, it was Passover, and they went to Jerusalem, and this event happened. So who's right? Was it at the end of Jesus' life or the beginning of his ministry? Um, this is a huge argument. Now, there are two schools of thought. There's the school of thought that said that John is recording the same event as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but he moved its position in the story in order to make a point, um, which is not unusual. Uh, so, I mean, Luke is very much trying to give us a timeline of events, uh, whereas the others are trying to make other points. John's point is Jesus is the Son of God. So he took the story, put it here in order to prove that Jesus is the Son of God because of all the events we just read. That's the first one. The problem is, is that verbiage and stuff then argues that John is saying that this is what happened next um, and all that. So the other scenario is that Jesus does this more than once. He does it at the beginning of his ministry and he does it at the end of his ministry. Um, there is also argument that uh, Jesus had the disciples for three Passovers. Um, there is thought that this is actually a fourth Passover and that only some of the disciples are there. And, and this has got a lot of traction. And that's where I come down. This Passover is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus does not call the rest of the disciples until Matthew chapter 4, which is after this event. And if you read Matthew chapter 4, they're coming back from Jerusalem and Jesus calls the disciples. Never says why he was in Jerusalem. We come to this event, and why is it only recorded in John? I go back to my previous argument. John is a relative of Jesus. They went to Capernaum. Why did they go to Capernaum? Because that's where Mary's sister lived. It appears that her husband is dead. The family gathers together at Capernaum. Maybe she was living there, or maybe she wasn't. I don't know. But it's the time of year for Passover. Everybody travels for Passover. She doesn't have a husband. She has sons. We don't know how young the younger ones are. Uh, we know Jesus is somewhere in his 30s. They get together in order to travel together to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. That's a normal family practice. They would travel as a whole clan. Her husband's dead. She goes and travels with her sister and her family and all of them. That means John would be with Jesus because he's a cousin. He's part of the family. John is one of the disciples. He's been called. Jesus has made him part of the group. 
Jesus is going to the temple. John probably went with him. Because it was a normal thing to go to the temple during Passover to make a sacrifice and all that. And for the men to gather and go together would be normal. So John is with him. Peter and his brother Andrew and them do not seem to be related to Jesus. So they wouldn't have been there. Neither is Nathaniel and Philip that I can tell. So John is the only one there present maybe to see this happen. The others probably hear about it. But John is an eyewitness. He's there with Jesus in the Temple Mount. Witnesses the whole thing. And John, remembering it when he's writing his gospel, proving to us that Jesus is the Christ, starts with the wedding in Canaan and shows the miracle. And then immediately after that, this whole temple thing happens. And then it happens again at the end of his time, which everybody else is there for, and they record it for us. So that's my argument for it. I don't know whether I'm right or wrong, but that's that's what we got. Go ahead, Carl. So it's uh, it's the the second two, probably. The what? The second two uh, arguments that you're saying. Right. Yeah. That this is that this is this happens more than once, um, which would make sense because the Jews wouldn't stop using the temple the way they were. And Jesus went three times, at least three times to, with the disciples there, that this being a fourth time, an earlier visitation, uh, would seem very likely and very possibly. Also, as we look at this, I just want to note, um, the money changers are there because the temple, you could not use uh, coins that weren't pure. And when I say pure, we often think that it has to do with the graven image on them. But it was beyond that. They could only use uh, coins from uh, Tyre. Tyrian coins were made of pure silver, which made them antibacterial. And so the the Jews didn't understand this, but that (laughs) is what the law required, that they could only use silver coins because it passed through so many hands at the temple. And it was in order to keep diseases, bacteria from, because people were traveling and bringing coins from all over the world, you could only use those because they were pure silver and wouldn't transmit it. Uh, That's something that they explained to us when we were in Israel, um, that that's why the coins had to be changed. So the money changers would sit out there and trade them so you could pay your temple tax with pure silver coins. So there's a freebie for you. (laughs) All right, let me show you some pictures now. Um, so that we understand what's going on. Because this is going to be important, not just now, but as we go through John, the whole thing with the temple. So I'm going to show us some some pictures. Some of them are going to be like this. This is the temple as it was in Jesus' day. Uh, Here's the fortress of Antonia. That was so that uh, the pilot or whoever was governor could watch what was going on in the temple. This is the whole Temple Mount. This is the Holy of Holy building here. This is the courtyard. And then the rest of this is uh, what was called the Gentiles courtyard. These steps here, all right? So this is the south, if you will. This is south. Go down the hill. And that's how you would enter the temple. The majority of the people entering the temple will come up through these stairs into the Gentiles' courtyard. There is an archway over here. Uh, 
forgetting what the call there, there's a name for it. The archaeologist who discovered it. Uh, there, this archway over here is what allowed you into the royal area. It, it's the uh, Herodian Road is beneath it. And they would come up from the Jew, the uh, old Jerusalem, where the city of David, as it's called, and they would come up and come in there. And so this was where the royal and high-ranking officials would come into, and they could overlook what was going on in the temple precinct. But the average people would come up these stairs. Now I'll show you a picture of that because I actually was there, standing where those stairs were in a moment. They empty out into here. There are gates along here that are the south gates that allow you into the temple precinct. The Gentiles courtyard is where the Gentiles, those who were not Jewish, could worship God. So you and I, unless you're a Jew, um, we would be allowed into there. And that's where we would come to pray and worship God. And if we had an offering, we would give it to a priest there and he would take it in for us. And all that. That is what this courtyard was for. The worship of the nations is supposed to happen here. That area is where they were conducting business. This whole huge area, um, and, and to give you size, this area here, the temple area itself, is about 150 yards. So a football field and a half or so. So you can see how much larger this is. The area for the nations was turned into a business district. <coughs> it's a giant market. You can see this would be a great place for pens with animals, lots of them, because you figure how many people come through and how many sheep they need to, I mean, the average family needs to bring at least one sheep. You get a thousand families, that's a thousand sheep. That takes up a huge amount. And these were tens of thousands of people that were coming through a day. And some want sheep, some want birds, some want oxen, depending on how wealthy they are. And so this area is just filled with it, as well as the uh, money changers, because they've got to change the money in order to pay the temple tax when they go in. All right. So that's what's going on. This is the area where Jesus is driving them out, that he's kicking them out because... Remember, what was the point of the Jews or the Israelites? So that the world would be able to know who God was. Yeah, yeah. Their, their purpose was to live a life that would draw the nations to God. Well, they've eliminated the area for the nations to come and worship God. So guess what? He wasn't very happy. Jesus is driving them out. All right. Oh. This, the Shoshan Gate, that's known as the King's Gate. This gate, the Kidron Valley is right here. This gate is the gate that the king would come in, or was supposed to come in, so that he could go right into the temple and all that. That is the gate that Jesus entered when he came, and it was um, Palm Sunday, where they're singing Hosanna, Nobody entered that gate because there was no king. The only person who was allowed to enter there would be the Messiah. So Jesus boldly, on Palm Sunday, marches across the Kidron Valley on that donkey and up the ramp and in that gate. This is why they were so incised over it. That gate, nobody used except the high priest once a year to go in to make the atonement for 
all the sins of Israel. And Jesus marches through that gate. That gate is the gate that it talks about in Revelation when he returns and he comes to claim Jerusalem for himself. He will enter in through that gate and be on the top of the mountain and will declare himself king and rule from there. That's the gate. That idea has permeated society to the point that's the gate there. When the Arabs conquered Jerusalem and they set up the Dome of the Rock, which is what you're seeing here. So this is the Temple Mount. The wall's still there. That gate is right there. You can see it's sealed. They've bricked it up. You can't get in through the gate. Not only that, let me uh, flip this out so you can see. There's the gate. What's this? Cemetery. Cemetery. The Arabs built a cemetery in front of that gate. I mean, you can see the number of tombs. Why? Because the rabbi would be unclean if he went through it. They built it there so that when the Messiah comes and to claim Jerusalem, this is how afraid they are of it because they know the truth of it. They built a cemetery there so that when Jesus returns, he has to walk through a cemetery, thus making him ritually unclean and incapable of entering the temple and declaring himself king and ruled from Jerusalem. They're terrified of it. They built a cemetery in the way as a block for him. Do you understand? The world knows. They can say whatever they want in the media and at the UN and all that, that the Dome of the Rock belongs to them and that the Arabs predate that. They can say whatever they want. Their actions say otherwise. They're afraid. They're concerned. They've got issues. So that's that gate. So here it is. You can actually see it. I'm standing on the Mount of Olives, which is interesting because that's where it says Jesus is going to return and set down his foot. The Jews have cemeteries there. Do you know why? They can be the first to rise. They can be the first to be raised. $50,000 for a cemetery plot on the Mount of Olives. And the farther up the hill you go, the price just keeps going because you'll be the first raised. Who wants to be first? They're going to pay the biggest buck to be the, the top of the hill. It's unbelievable. The world knows. They can say whatever they want. <laughs> <coughs> they know better. <laughs> All right, so here we are. That's that gate. All right, quick question. Anybody? You want some water? No, I, I got it. I, I got it. It's just spazzing. <laughs> okay, let's swing the other way. So now these are the entrances that lead to those stairwells. This is the south side. This is where you would have gone up into the temple. Those are three on this side. There's two more openings over here that would allow the people. We were standing there and uh, <clears throat> our guides were explaining all of this to us. So right here, this dates all the way back to the time of Christ, which is amazing in and of itself. Let's swing and look. So there's that's the Mount of Olives. So the, the wall is here and you swing a little bit this way. This is the Mount of Olives. Those are all the tombs that I was just telling you about that the Jews built. So that they can be, that's all tombs. <laughs> and we were standing up here where these people are there. That's where I was standing, taking those pictures back at that gate. So I'll give you an idea. Um, this was a huge open area. 
This is like behind me. So I'm standing looking this way. Those, those stairwells are behind me. And all of these areas that you're seeing here are being excavated. They've discovered that those are water cisterns for ritual bathing. You could not enter the Temple Mount unless you were purified. So you would go into these. You would go down in there and you would dip yourself, put on a clean garment, and then you could go up to the temple in order to worship. Here's a better, that's how many there were. I forget, there's like 100 plus that are there. Um, this is what they look like. I mean, you can see they just go down. So you would walk up and then go down into it and then come back up and go up the thing. This is, a, this is what it is. That's it. So here's the stairs. There's the water. You go down, dip yourself, and come up. Thousands and thousands of people a day are going up to the Temple Mount. They've all got to bathe here. Um, when it was a festival, it was tens of thousands. They would use the Pool of Shalom, um, where the Hezekiah's tunnel dumps into and all that. They would use that pool. They would put a curtain down the middle of it because it's a huge, think like swimming pool. They put a curtain down the middle, women on one side, men on the other, and they would just use that. People would go in there, and then they'd walk up to the top of the hill, which it's at the very bottom of the hill. So it's the Temple Mount, then it was the palace for David and Solomon's palace, and then the old city just slopes away. I mean, it's a long slope, too. And at the bottom is where that pool is, and they would bathe there and then walk all the way up. Um, huh? It wasn't about being clean. It's ritual purification. The water, it's, it's kind of the holy water idea that you've been blessed. You're, you're, it has no intrinsic value of itself. It's that you did it and you're now purified. All right, let's jump. Do I have any quick questions? Because I'm going to run out of time here. Huh? I want to be one of the first ones. Yeah. No? Okay. Let's move on. This is now a cutaway of the temple itself. Um, there's several things I want to point out. Uh, the first one is this chamber of the Nazarites. Okay, the chamber of the Nazarites was where they would come when they were taking their vows and they would bring in a sin offering, a burnt offering, and a peace offering. They would shave their heads and all that. That's what took place in that chamber. So the ritual preparedness of a Nazarite for the vow is there. This one is the chamber of the lepers. I'm like, what in the world is that? That's where the lepers, when they were cleansed, would come. They would bring a sacrifice and present themselves to the priest to prove that they were now clean. That's where they came. They couldn't leave there until they were proclaimed clean. And then they would take their sacrifice to this gate of Nekor. And they would give it to the priest and he would go and offer it. And now you would be ritually clean. That's what would take place in there. Turn the page. Isn't this cool? Okay, then there's the chamber of oils. It was a storage room that they would keep all the olive oil and wine that was used for the sacrifices, for the filling of the menorah, the oil lamps, all that. That's what that was. So this is a big storage room for all of that. It's in there. Then there's the chamber of wood. The chamber of wood was a special room where the Levites, who were considered unusable for um, temple practices, they had a blemish, maybe they had a crooked finger, a birthmark, something like that. They could not work in the temple because of the blemish. <coughs> the, 
They would work in the chamber of wood. Do you realize how much wood it took for all the sacrifices? The wood had to be pure. If the wood had worms, it had to be thrown out. It could not be used. So wood would be delivered to the chamber of wood, and that is where they would go through it piece by piece, stick by stick, to see if it had worms or not, and put it in a pile to be used there. Those Levites who were unpure for service could work in that room, and that's what they did. This chamber is also, according to the Mishnah, where they hid the Ark of the Covenant. When Jerusalem was being sacked, they found, years later, the stones were discolored and all that, that they had hidden it under the stone floor in this chamber. Um, and it's believed that that's... So if you've ever watched um, Indiana Jones, they lift the thing. <laughs> well, the idea comes from this, and it supposedly was hidden in that room, not in Egypt. So they kind of, you know, made the movie whatever they want. But anyway, <laughs> they, that's where they believed that it was hidden away until it could be gotten out of the city and all that. Anyway, so that's there. One other um, thing I want to show you. Uh, this area right here, this is a room. Now, this is the women's courtyard. So men could be in there that are Israelites. If you're a Jew, you could enter the women's courtyard. Women could go in there, and that's where they would go to pray. That was as close to God as they could get. Gentiles out here, that's as close as they could get. Men could go into this area. There's a, a line, if you will. This is the priest courtyard here in the middle, but the outer edge is where the men, the Israelites, could go. This square is a room, and it's the meeting room of the Sanhedrin. Jesus is going to be taken to the Sanhedrin to be tried. This room is right there. This is what it looks like. The inside of that room would have looked like this. So the students of all these rabbis would be seated here in this. There would be two clerks that are writing down everything that's being said. And you've got 35 members on each side. The high priest sat in the throne and the accused stood before him. This is where Jesus would have been taken um, inside the temple courtyard in there to this room. This is where the Sanhedrin met. So if you ever wanted to know, I told you there's a lot to go. All right, any, any questions quickly before we go on? Just, just quick, um, the Sanhedrin, was that something that was you kind of evolved later? Like, was it um, later, the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin, there was always a council of elders, oh, okay. but it became the Sanhedrin where it was a mix of um, Pharisees and Sadducees that came during the 400 silent years in between because doctrinally they disagreed on a lot of things. And so the elders that David would have met, the council of elders and all that, becomes this uh, later on as it becomes a political body and all that. Okay. Last section as we close this up. All right. Um, oh, no, this is actually the, th the third section. I'm sorry. Uh, worship is expected. We're talking about he declares the temple to be a place of worship of God. He overturns the tables because the nations have no room to worship. Here's what we get. Properness replaced worship. The Jews took all the proper, you got to do all the right things in order to worship God, as opposed to actual true worship, which comes from the heart. That's what Jesus is coming to restore, is that we worship from the heart, 
and that uh, we that, that all that properness isn't what it's about. Um, we see here that the Gentiles had no place to worship, and that angered him. Uh, and we see that Jesus came to remove barriers to worship. We're going to see that when we get to the woman at the well. Where do we worship? She's going to ask. Jesus says it doesn't matter what mountaintop. It's going to be in your heart and all that. He's coming to fix the problem. We've got a problem with it. Here's what I've got to say on this. Worship is not commercial activity. It is connecting with the Father in spirit and in truth through Jesus Christ, the Lamb. Um, that's what it's about. Give me a second to write in there. All right. Okay, here we go. So, here we go. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Somebody quickly read that so we can finish this off. <coughs> So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word and Jesus, word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. All right, so here we go. This is um, the Passover. We see that the, he's being challenged by the Pharisees and Sadducees over why he's doing it. We don't see the anger and all that that we read about in Luke and in Matthew and Mark, which comes at the end of Jesus' ministry where they decide that they're going to crucify him. John doesn't record that for us here. That's why I think that this is probably a second time that this happened. All right. Okay, so the sign is going to be remembered. John tells us that the disciples are going to remember this later on, that it happened. Uh, he gets challenged... He gets a challenge from the Jews over who do you think you are doing this? The Jews are upset that he, how could you destroy the temple? Whereas we know that Jesus is talking about himself. And we understand that the disciples are going to remember this and understand exactly what he means. This is early in his ministry. Nobody really gets it. Um, one of the, some of the things that we see here, Jesus is now, here's the, this is the temple and all the procedures, and Jesus upends the whole thing. He is superseding Moses. He is turning over the law, and he says, look, I'm the one. I'm the Son of God. So as he's doing these things, he's proving and making the statement that he supersedes Moses. The blessing of the uh, kingdom supersedes the whole ceremonial washing. We saw that with the water jars with that. So now he comes to the temple... Um, the dwelling place supposedly of God and we see that he supersedes it because he says he's going to replace it he's going to build it new and all that we, what we're seeing is, is that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry he's, it's not something he developed that he's going to be God he starts from the very beginning claiming to be equal with God 
and that he supersedes all the Jewish properness, all these things. He's the one that's important. He's the one that instituted them and you've perverted them. And that's what he begins teaching as we go from here. All right, quickly, three things to take with us. And then we'll be done. First, we should see Jesus working even in the small things, as we saw with Canaan and the wine. He cared about the party. He cared that there wasn't enough and that he would take care of it. I mean, it's a party, but it mattered to him. Uh, we see uh, that we must worship God in spirit and in truth. He wants worship. He's worthy of worship. And replacing it with some commercialized venue of worship is unacceptable, as they were worshiping God by buying those things and taking them into the temple. That's not what he wants. He wants ourselves. Thirdly, we must worship Jesus as the Son of God, not just as a good teacher, not as a great man, um, but John is putting it to us. This is the Son of God, and he needs to be worshipped by us because he's not like us. He's beyond us um, in terms of that. And we'll see more of that as we move forward. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the lessons, for the fact that you care about the things that matter to us. Lord, that you care and want us to enjoy life and to be able to celebrate. Father, we thank you that you care that we would be able to worship you, that that is a good thing. Lord, help us to do this properly so that we can glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.